0: Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
2: This week, the Clarets were at home and faced bottom of the league Huddersfield Town, aiming to make it 3 wins out of 3. This is the Known and Never podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Known and Never podcast, listeners. We're here again. It's Monday night. It's eight o'clock. It's myself. It's Robbie Kopack. It's Dave Roberts. We are here to talk about Burnley's home game on Saturday at Turf Moor against Huddersfield Town. Joining me, as ever, is a regular panelist and co-host Robbie Kopack, who this week will be going with the Handle Long Ball FC. Robbie, good evening.
1: Uh, do we have to do this? <laughs>
2: We do have to do this, Robbie. Come on. Game face on. Our listeners need some form of therapy. And we need to... Talk about things. No, you're going to have to behave and man up. And again, as a special treat, this is becoming a regular habit, and I'm enjoying it very much. We are joined again by resident statistician Dave Roberts. Dave, welcome back to the show again. I'm I'm loving having you on for the entire shows.
0: Good evening, thank you. I'm glad you're uh, you're enjoying
2: it. Now let's dive straight into this and let's have a look at what we're dealing with this week. And it's going to be a challenging week, but it's going to be a week that, with the team, is very much geared up to go for and try and dissect. Burnley at home to Huddersfield, a game that we were really expecting to win. And that's not from an arrogant perspective, guys. I don't think we were I don't think we've got that sense of entitlement yet. But I think being as established as we are in the Premier League and coming off the back of two back to back wins, Huddersfield were a team yet to win this season in the Premier League and I think it's eight games before they came to us that they'd not won and only three points to their name at the bottom of the table so I think we were all hoping for a positive display, lots of goals and a win but sadly it was not meant to be. Before we start looking into the match though, we had to have a quick look at the team selection and the disappointing news to most clarets that Stephen DeFour had not made the squad. Now, the announcement at the time was that he had to withdraw for personal reasons and it has since been revealed through social media that sadly Stephen did lose his father over the weekend I'm sure all of our listeners will join us in passing our sincere condolences to Stephen it's a heartbreaking thing to have to go through and we do send you all our love Stephen and we look forward to welcoming you back to Burnley with open arms as soon as you can get yourself back and ready to face your job again and and ready to face what you need to to, to, to get on and uh, you know don't come back until you're ready I think I think all of us will allow you the ability to to take some time to grieve but you know where we all are Stephen and hopefully the fans will uh, send you lots of love so let's move on then Robbie let's come to you first now the first half of that goal sorry, the first half of that game, she saw Burnley score the first goal and it was our boy Sammy. Now, I don't think that that first half was that bad a game of football. I thought, on the whole, Burnley were pretty confident. I thought they were pretty direct and it was an absolutely cracking goal by Vauxy, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, another great cross by Goodminton as well. We talked about Goodminton crossing abilities for quite some time now and I think Voxie goes right, you know, you're you taught to head the ball back where it came from and he did that. It would textbook Sam Volks really.
2: Yeah, it was, and I mean, Dave, you just don't expect Vauxy to miss many of those, do you? It's a beautiful header, and it's it's just textbook Vox, isn't it?
0: Yeah, he likes scoring goals with his uh, with his head. I know he's had one or two uh, off days. I think uh, Robbie touched on it last week, didn't he? Uh, uh, the uh, Arcos game, but I think uh, more often than not, uh, he knows where the net is, and he's got a handy knack of finding goals with his uh, head, like he had done at uh, Cardiff. And managed to do the same against Huddersfield, which we were uh, grateful for in the end.
2: Yeah, very much so. And I think, Robbie, just, just going back to, obviously, the crossing for Volks' golf from JBG for me he put a man in the match performance in and I think he was kind of robbed on the day and a lot of pundits before the game were suggesting that he was the Premier League player to look out for for the entire weekend I think people are really starting to sit up and pay attention to just how good he is and I thought I just thought he absolutely run ragged that first half and he really put in a, a shift didn't he
1: yeah, I was. Uh, funnily enough, I was actually only talking uh, to a couple of friends of mine who obviously aren't Burnley fans, and I said that I was surprised that he didn't get any links between moves away or anything because I thought he had a really strong season last year. I thought his first season with us, he didn't look quite at that level, he didn't look fit, but yeah, the last, like this last past season, this season, he's started really, really strong and. I don't know how long has he got left of his deal. Has he signed a new deal recently?
2: Yeah, I think most of the senior team now have have taken on new deals, haven't they? I seem to think he's got another three years done. Dave, can you shed any light on that? Can you remember? I think he's got three years.
0: I can't off my head. I'll have to, I'll have to check that.
2: Yeah, no, it, it's it's certainly it's not short term anyway, Robbie.
1: It's all good then. I don't want another like Michael Michael Keane situation.
2: No, <laughs> I know it, it's always a poison chalice. Danny situation. It's always a poison chalice, isn't it, when you've got some players who are doing really, really well and then all of a sudden other teams start coming and sniffing around. And I, I think it just makes it even worse that we've got good months for such an absolute bargain as well. And I think we're in a situation now where Burnley don't need to be selling players for profit, so I'm not even bothered if somebody comes in for a massive amount for him. I just very much want us to cling on to him because I just think he's fantastic. Dave, we we have got a bit of a selection dilemma, don't we, when Stephen DeFord does come back into the side. It'd be very difficult at the moment to drop anybody. I mean, let's sort of, it's going to happen soon. He's obviously he's back fit and he's had this awful personal situation over the weekend. But when he does come back and he is ready to come back to work, where do we fit him in? Who gets dropped?
0: Well, no, it is difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's good to have options, though. I think, um, you know, we'll be looking to get. Uh... Uh, Stephen DeFore back in the side, we were d- uh, discussing it before the uh, last game in, in his sort of stepping up his, his game time in the under-23s. Obviously, Robbie Brady's had a little bit of a setback, so he's maybe a little bit further back. But it'd be great to have options and uh, you know midfield options, Brady and DeFore in there, either starting a game or, or coming on as impact subs to begin with. It might be the case where they don't get straight back into the team and we're maybe yeah. looking to uh, to use them from the bench uh, initially.
2: Yeah, I'm really torn with that, to be honest. I know Deitch likes to keep loyalty to his players and he likes to keep a consistent, settled side. But one of the things we've talked about so much recently is a real lack of creativity in the side and a little bit of pace. So I think before Robbie, has to be the exception, doesn't he? I think somebody has to make way to, to get him in that side.
1: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure who you take out. Obviously, a lot of discussion over the weekend is the former Jack Cork. He hasn't had a great start to the season, but if you put like Westwood and the four next to each other, I just don't think that would work at all. And I think it's going to have to be Westwood to go out if the four is going to have to come back in, and certainly in a two as well.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the logic that I'd put to it, and I think that's probably where I'd got to. But let's, you know, I was talking to this with one of the guys who I sit with at the, the turf on Saturday. DeFord doesn't often play a full 90 minutes anyway, especially when he first comes back into the side. We saw this last season before he got injured, and we certainly saw it the season before. He tends to have a good 55, 60 minutes in him, but he does get substituted. So even if... Westwood is the unfortunate one which I've got to say I think be very harsh I think Westwood's been absolutely fantastic recently but if Westwood is the one that needs to, to come out the side to make room for him then I do fully expect to to come on for say 55 60 minutes and Westwood to get the other half an hour so it's not like we're going to lose Westwood completely I do agree with you, Robbie. Actually, and Dave, it's interesting to see whether you agree with this. But Jack Cork definitely looks out of sorts at the moment, doesn't he?
0: Um, yeah, I think he probably has done the last couple of games, I and mean, we've taken it for granted. He, uh, you know, played every minute of every game last season. He's played every minute of every Premier League game so far this season. But you know, will that continue? I don't know. If if you've got options in midfield, it's perhaps not going to be a a given that he's going to be on the team sheet. Automatically, it might be a, a decision that Sean Dyche has to make sometime down the line.
2: Is he it, is it just tired? Do you think, uh, Robbie? Or do you think it's more than that? I think he's just tired, isn't he, surely?
1: Yeah, like Dave just touched on it. Then he he played every minute of every game last season. He played a big part of the European campaign, and I just he does catch up, but he is probably the only midfielder which be that type of midfielder where we don't really have that kind of backup like Westwood, Hendrick and Defoe, in a way are quite similar, but Jack Cork is that sort of deep-lying, he will just sit and hold his position. We don't really have another def- like a defensive type of midfielder, really.
2: No, no, we don't. Well, I think... Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say something really insightful then about how Defoe was going to slot into some amazing formation and I realised that I'm not Sean Darch and I actually don't really know how the heck to get everybody in there so I'm going to I'm going to leave the tactics to Sean. So nothing else really to report in that first half. I thought the clarets like I say were a pretty good for the the lead by half time. I would have liked to have seen them kill the game off a bit more, but I thought we were well in control and I thought that we were going to see out the game comfortably. Everybody at halftime seemed pretty happy. Nick Warden tweeted us to say that, you know, he was on the turf morning and ate a lovely peppered steak pie at halftime. I think that kind of summed up the mood. Everybody was feeling relaxed, enjoying their peppered steak pie and having a laugh. Then came the second half. Okay, brace yourself, listeners, because we're going to have to talk about all the talking points of the game. We're going to have to talk about the reaction on, on Saturday after the game. Social media was not a comfortable place, unfortunately, on Saturday. I think people were, emotions were running very high. People were really annoyed at the performance. They were annoyed at the result. People were falling out of each other left, right and centre. And it all got a little bit heated. Some points rational, some quite irrational. And we're going to try and get through as much of it as we possibly can and put some level-headed reasonableness on it. That's the aim. Whether we get there or not is another matter. But let's go for it. Now, Now, Robbie. Talking point number one from the second half, Sam Vaux's alleged elbow on Schindler. Now, everybody around the ground thought that it was nothing. And actually, I think most Burnley fans did that thing that you do when you think a player's milking it until we all saw just how much blood was coming out of Schindler's face. And then I think everybody shut up and went, oh, okay, yes, he's quite injured. Vaux has said it's an accident. Um, Schindler himself has said he doesn't want to say at all that Volks did it deliberately. And Wagner came out and said he's going to give Volks the benefit of the doubt. However, Sam has to have better control over his body. The elbow was dangerous and it was ugly. So, Robbie, let's come to you first. Some ex-referees who now have media spots and, and offer opinions after the game are suggesting that Vox was very, very lucky not to get a straight red card and is likely to face retrospective FA action. What was your take on the elbow? A, was it deliberate? And B, is he likely to face a ban after the event?
1: To be honest, I didn't even know it was it got that far. Live I didn't even, I didn't even know the elbow had happened. I assumed the ball hit the guy in the face and that's what caused the blood but I've only really seen it back from like a TV angle. I haven't really seen it like a close-up so I, I don't know what Boxers like body shape was like where he's, where he was looking, but Sam Vox to me doesn't really seem like the type of player to leave like leave one on someone. If it was Ashley Barnes, I'd probably think differently. But it just doesn't. He just, to me, he just doesn't seem like the type of player to deliberately like try and hurt somebody.
2: No, that's a really good point, and that's certainly something that I was going to mention, Dave. I'm very much of the opinion. Now, listeners, you all know I'm kind of biased about Sam. He happens to be my favorite player. We all know this, and I'm always very <laughs> supportive of him. But he just—he isn't a nasty player, is he? Is he, Dave? He doesn't get sent off. He doesn't get into fights. He doesn't, you know, put in bad tackles or, or try and injure players. So surely that benefit of the doubt is justified in saying well no of course it was an accident he definitely didn't mean to do it but I want you to have a look at this claim by Wagner that he has to have better control over his body whilst it might not have been deliberate was it reckless
0: well the the, the outcome was obviously unfortunate for the uh, for the opposition player but I think that we probably need to take his word Schindler's word over everyone else's he's the one who's uh, come out and said, well, you know, it wasn't deliberate. And Sam isn't that sort of player. I think it's, he's good in the air, wins the ball, but he's, he's just not that type of player at all. So it was it was surprising, actually, to hear Wagner's comments after the game. And I think, I mean, I don't know what the schedule is for the FA. Sometimes you get surprised by, by these things. I think they may well have said thing already by now, so I'd, I'd be very, very surprised if anything more came of it, to be honest.
2: Oh, that's reassuring to hear. Now, if I see any reports coming out tomorrow and they've delayed it, Dave, I'm going to blame you for that because I'm now taking that as gospel truth. Listeners, Dave Roberts says that the time has now passed. Limitation has passed. The FA can no longer take any retrospective action over <laughs> Sam Volks. This section may actually be out of date by the time Matt even produces it and <laughs> publishes it because he might be facing it by then. Okay, so I think we're pretty comfortable that the elbow wasn't deliberate but may have been irresponsible. I'm not even going to go as far as to say that it was reckless. I have seen it quite a few times afterwards and he doesn't do anything other than he's a big guy and he uses his arms to get that momentum to get him up to go for the header which most big forwards and big defenders do. That's how they get off the ground, for goodness sake. And I don't know whether I believe Wagner's claim that he has to have more control over his body I think maybe he's talking a little bit out of emotions it was a you know it was a difficult second half and his side he believes should have got three points so maybe he was trying to make drama out of something that wasn't there I don't know and what he might have been doing listeners is trying to mask the behaviour of his own player the second incident coming out of the second half was the Ridiculous dive from De Potre. You know, Dave and Robbie did teach me how to say that before we came on air, and I'm not entirely sure I've got it right, but I'm going to go with Depotre. It was a dive trying to get a penalty at the cricket field, and and it's resulted in a little bit of uh, niggling afters between him and Tarkovsky. And thank goodness we just. Number one, we don't seem to get on the right side of these decisions, or referees tend to bottle it. But for once, the referee saw it for the ridiculous dive that it was and produced a yellow card. Now, Robbie Dyche was absolutely furious with this. Just how embarrassing was that dive?
1: To be honest with you, I haven't seen it back. I'm only going to speak from like a live perspective, and it looked blatant. And I, I was fuming myself that like it was just to seem so. I can saw I saw. I saw like I think it was Tarkovsky who, uh, went to challenge him. You saw him coming across, and I, you could just tell by Tarkovsky's uh, body shape that he wasn't a foul. And to see him go down, and see Huddersfield fans like appeal and stuff was pretty disgusting, to be honest
2: okay that's that's fair enough although can we have a slight interjection here and Robbie I'm gonna start setting you homework because that's two questions I've just come to you and you're like I didn't see it apart from live so from now on can you start watching highlights please (laughs) otherwise our poor listeners will be overtaking you Uh, we've been rubbish though Well, that's not a good enough excuse, Robbie Kopak. You've got to, there's a pain that comes with being a Burnley fan. And no matter how bad it is, you know, you've got to go through it. Okay. So, Dave, Robbie only saw it in, in real time. So he hasn't been able to to look back at the benefit. Have you seen it? Please tell me yes. And if so, do you think Daich is right in saying that? Because, I mean, he was furious with this, Dave. And he was saying that it's a yellow card. Well, so what? A player's going to do it again next week. Yes, they are going to do it next week. And he's made the point that he absolutely hates it. And he's seeing kids at grassroots football learning how to do the dives to win the penalties. You know, is there any point in giving them yellow cards for this, even though it was as embarrassing as it was?
0: Well, the interesting point is it's um, it's sort of bearing out what Sean Dyche has said in the, I think it was in the pre-match press conference, where his quotes about diving came out. And, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, it was to do with the um, incident last year. We, we discussed it last week on the uh, podcast when we're looking back on the previous Huddersfield Town matches and it was nearly 12 months ago, it was Rajiv Van Lepara went down and it was the same referee, Chris Kavanagh, who booked him last year and, true to form, got the decision spot on again this season because it was a a blatant die. But it's just bearing out exactly what Sean Dyche has said during the week. And the punishment doesn't fit the crime because the, the rewards at the end of it are potentially so great. If the referee's fooled into it, gives the penalty... Huddersfield get the goal, they go on to win and get three points. Then the rewards are so much greater than oh well, yeah, he's got a a yellow card, so what? You know, players will continue to do it for as long as the the rewards outweigh the risks, and that's what seems to be happening.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, Wagner did come out and say he was really disappointed with de Pottery and he said he was going to speak to him, although he couldn't resist a little cheeky dig and said, you know, we, we do not want to see this in the game, just like we don't want to see ugly elbows. It's like, oh, for goodness sake. So, uh, yeah, I hopefully that you know that the club will speak to him, and I, I don't really know what the answer is because I'm I'm kind of sick of it, and I'm also sick of hearing the different reports and the justification by pundits, especially Sky, one of the worst for it, and Match of the Day getting quite bad as well for it, in categorizing players as, as clever. I was watching one of the games at the weekend. I can't remember. It might have been Southampton, and I think the commentator was saying, "Oh, he's been really clever there, and he's he's gone down." And it's like, no, it's not clever. It's cheating. It's 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 diving in. It, it. This part of the modern game absolutely infuriates me. So, I mean, I don't know whether or not it's it's going to get stamped out, and I just I, I just don't know whether or not it's it's just become too ingrained in our sport now. But uh, the the more well, the less we see of that, the better, in my opinion. So, they were the main two talking points, and coming out of the second half was also a goal for Huddersfield, which was really disappointing and didn't mean that the Clarets came away from that game with just a point, even though they had taken the lead. Now, it was a good goal, I think, and... Robbie, I think most Burnley fans would have to admit that it was coming and it had been coming for a good 20 minutes. Once again, the Clarets just didn't seem to come out of the blocks at all did they? in the second half and just invited that pressure. So it just wasn't a surprise, was it, when Huddersfield scored?
1: No. To be fair, I thought we were coming from the the first whistle. At the start of the podcast, you said that you thought we were good first half. I thought we were poor first half. I thought Huddersfield dominated from start to finish. We nearly gifted them a couple of goals in the first half with Ben Mee assing around and... And then to the Huddersfield credit, they made us poor like with a high press and stuff. But the cross by I think it was Aaron Moy with a cross for Schindler's header is that's sensational. That it's a shame that like, nobody bothered to close a cross down because we just invited the pressure, and inevitably they scored
2: from it. Yeah. I know you and I disagree about the the first half performance from the Clarets side. I thought we were all right in that first half. But I think it seems like Vaughn actually shares your view Robbie. I mean, do you would you go as far as to agree with what he said? So his analysis after the game was that the Huddersfield players had two thirds of the possession. They had 19 shots to Burnley's six, which in itself is pretty appalling. And he he said of his side's performance that they gave a strong, brave confident performance and completely dominated the game. Now, I read that and just thought, mate, you know, I know we weren't great, but neither were you. You were. That's To me, Huddersfield were a pretty poor side last season. And I said at half-time that I thought they were even worse this season. I mean, Robbie, do you go as far as endorsing Wagner's, I guess, analysis of the game and say that they were actually that good?
1: To an extent, I think he's over-exaggerating it. I, I don't think Huddersfield were good. Like I said, their finishing were appalling because I think they could have scored two or three. But I'm more talking about in terms of a game plan. Like Huddersfield came and from the first whistle, you could see what their game plan was. It was to press high and make us go long and make us like get really irritated and stuff. Burnley's game plan, I don't know what our game plan was. There was no clear plan in place of what we were doing. As Huddersfield, you could sort of see what they were trying to do, even though they weren't doing it particularly well like you could see that they come with a plan and that they come to frustrate us and like really close us down and get right in our face like you could see how high their defensive line was Burnley's answer to that was just to kick it up in the air and not win a single header all afternoon
2: yeah to be honest I agree with that I think I'd not really thought about the game in terms of a game plan. And you're absolutely right. There there was very little from Burnley in terms of tactics or awareness of the game or ability to change things around when things weren't going their way. Now, this is where it got quite difficult. I think one of the most disappointing things for, for most of our listeners over the weekend was just the manner of the defeat and the manner of the football that we played. Now Deitch himself came out after the game and did say that Burnley were not at their best and they had somehow lost their way. I think a lot of our listeners went a little bit further with that and I'll just read you out some of the messages that we received after the game on on Saturday just in um, reflection of what they'd just seen. Um, Josh Nicholson said, unpopular opinion Sam Volks football doesn't work work. It doesn't really encourage you to keep it on the ground. We then had one from Luke Dempsey who said we threw away Europa League for boring rigid men behind the ball Premier League football and Matt Hall said it's getting increasingly hard to back the team and be a loyal supporter through thick and thin. It's absolutely dire to watch. The football is appalling and I'm not enjoying it anymore. Right Dave. Let's come to you first. Sam Volks football doesn't work. I'm assuming what Josh means there is this, um, I guess, habit that we've fallen into recently of just playing long ball hoof football up to the front two and almost bypassing midfield and, and losing out on that creativity. And I, I, I'm going to say, I don't think we've done it a lot. I think we have shown patches this season where we have been able to use our wingers and been creative, the Bournemouth game being the classic example. But there's some quite harsh criticism there about the standard of play that we've got and the standard of the football. Dave, are you enjoying it or is that harsh?
0: Overall, the uh, the Cardiff game and the Huddersfield game, we, we didn't play at our best by, by a long stretch. And that that's uh, an understatement. But we do have to remember we got four points out of the game. We've got seven out of the last three games. And if we can play like that and still get the points, then it does give some hope for uh, when we can get our act together, which I think the, the international break, I think, again, has come at quite a good time for Burnley, time to regroup. The disappointing part, I think, or the, the unfortunate part, is we've got two really tough games coming up after that, obviously Manchester City away, and then uh, we play Chelsea at home, don't we? So it's going to be, uh, be really tough in those two games. But in some ways, that might work in our favour the fact that we're probably not expected to get anything out of those two games and perhaps we can put a different sort of defensive plan in action which just maybe maybe works better for us than, than it has done the last couple of games.
2: Yeah, they're really good points actually, Dave. Sometimes it's a lot easier to play in the games where you've got nothing to lose, isn't it? Because you've got that freedom to just go out and there's no expectations of you and I think maybe this Burnley side who a lot was made of their poor start to the season even though it was you know, very early days. I wonder whether or not they maybe just felt the pressure on Saturday a little bit. Robbie, some other observations about the standard of football this is. So we're still on at the moment about how some fans are just not enjoying the football at the moment. Simon Fisher said, you know, we actually scored against the run of play and we were always hanging on for grim death and we are too bothered about keeping shape and totally sacrificing winning the ball back. It's very hard to watch. Um, Again, not that particularly pleased with the standard of the performance. Andy Pickering just got straight to the point and just said that was a woeful performance. Not once did we press Huddersfield. Something's not right at the turf. Now, we've seen a lot of people say this, and I've seen media camps from other sides also say the same thing, that something doesn't feel right with this Burnley side. Robbie, do you share that concern? Is something broken with us? And if so, what the hell is it?
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think in terms of like everyone's moaning about the men behind the ball and the team shape. I think we just do that in terms of like a a default tactic when we're not quite at it. In terms of just right, let's just make sure we don't get beat. And that's a really good mentality to have, because a lot of teams when they're not playing well, the whole defensive shape like goes a wall, and like we had that problem with the Watford game and the Fulham game. At least we still had that sort of that defensive discipline to sort of grind out a result but in terms of frustration in terms of like the tactics i think my main frustration is the fact that the long ball tactics weren't working in the 20th minute the 40th minute it wasn't working in the 60th minute or the 80th minute it just it was not working at all and we signed Matic vidra who apparently give us a different option a different dimension so it's like use your options to like try and get a foothold in the game because it just seemed inevitable that Huddersfield were going to score. And I think if Huddersfield had, had an extra 10 minutes, they probably would have got a winner anyway.
2: Okay, so that's kind of interesting. One of the points that I picked out of that analysis, Robert, you're talking there about tactics and about how clear it was at different stages of the game that it wasn't working. One of the points that Nick Sussex-Claret said to us was that it was Dyche's problem and he was too late to make the right substitutions. And this is a really big fault of his I'm struggling to I agree th- with that as well. Yeah, I do agree with that. And I think sometimes he is too... Number one, he's reactive. And number two, he is maybe too slow off the market at being able to change something around. And he does put a lot of faith in his players that they're the right ones to be able to turn things around on the pitch and stick to the game plan that he's set up. He doesn't like changing things around during the game. But what would you have done differently then on Saturday? Like... I guess the main one is Vidro, isn't it? I mean, that was the that was to, for me the the biggest tactical quandary. But other than that, what would you have done differently?
1: To be fair, I, a lot of people probably would have reacted negatively to it, but I probably would have taken either Barnes or Volks off and put Hendrick on and just made it like a flat five across midfield just to try and get like a foothold in the game because the two wasn't working. We were getting dominated in midfield for Aaron Moy and. Philip Billing for Huddersfield, apologies if that's not right, but I thought the Huddersfield midfield just dominated the game, and we just, we needed somebody just to get the ball and just keep hold of it, and Hendrick gives you that option to drive forward as well, like he did give, he did show that when he did come on, yeah, he just needed somebody, like again, just Vidra just to like link up the midfield and the attack, there's something just to give us like a different option.
2: Yeah, I think I think for me, Hendrik made a real difference when he came on, and 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 you're right, we were completely overrun in midfield. So you know, once I can understand why he set up Dave. I mean, at first, when I first saw this team sheet, I could not for the life of me understand why Vidra wasn't starting with folks, and I was absolutely baffled. I think I tweeted this before the game. I was like, I just don't understand it sometimes, and a lot of the feedback on social media was very much well and, and this is something that a few people tweeted me that Dyche had obviously made the tactical decision that Huddersfield were going to play quite direct we were going to uh, defend quite high so you know having the pace of Vidra wasn't actually going to benefit us so we were better off having Vokes and Barnes up front and using their power and using their height but it wasn't working, and like like Robbie said, on about 65 minutes, it was clear that something needed to be done. And in the end, if he ended up bringing Vidra on for five minutes, was it about 85th minute, something like that, he came on. Well, what on earth is he going to do in that five minutes?
0: Well, it was, it was nearer to 15, wasn't it, because we had eight minutes of, of time. At the
2: end. Oh, actually, and that, yeah, that's that was, true. Kind on of a secondary point.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's one of those where you can kind of understand it, why he didn't start, you know, in, in terms of the way that Huddersfield were, uh, were set up to play, and perhaps that was kind of uh, of preempting that. I think that worked to a point in the first half, but in the second half, I mean I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, a, a chance we had on on goal, we didn't really create anything of note in the second half. I think it was as the game went on it became clearer that Huddersfield were the dominant force in the game. And if anyone was going to go on and win it, it would be would be them. So, you know, in in the end, the fact that Burnley got a point out of it was uh, was perhaps a bonus the way that the second half was going.
2: Yeah, probably. I, I, just, I do share those concerns and I do understand when fans get frustrated when something's clearly not going well and Deitch is very slow to try and change things around. And I think the only thing I can think of is, is like I said before, he has the faith in his players that he can turn it around. And actually what we've got to remember here, and I, I've fallen into this trap a good couple of times over the weekend, we didn't get beat here, we drew. It does feel like we got beat, and it feels like we sat here talking about a loss, but we didn't. We got a point, and it was a very hard-earned point, as they all are in the Premier League, and we had to grind it out because we weren't playing particularly very well. So maybe Daisha's view was just, we are getting overrun here, and actually, if I make these substitutions, that might contribute to Huddersfield going on and getting a winner. So maybe his delay in making those tactical substitutions were just purely because he wanted to keep the Clarets in the game. I just wonder, Robbie, whether could we on Saturday have really gone for it against Huddersfield and gone out there to try and get five or six goals and really, really have, have a go at them and really produce a dominating, confident, sit-up-and-take-notice performance? Or was that never going to be the case?
1: Yeah, it's never going to be the case. It's just typical, like Sean Datcher. I don't think we're ever going to win a game like, to be fair, we beat Bournemouth 4 0, but it's not going to happen every single week, and it's not certainly not going to happen again this season, probably. But I don't mind grinding out results. Like, you're not going to play well every single week. It's just the fact that it's. You're against Huddersfield at home. They're the worst side in the league, no disrespect. And it's just the thing that annoyed me is that we needed to make a change. We never made it. Huddersfield scored, and then he made the change. It took it took it up until a Huddersfield equalised to actually bring Hendrick on, and that really wound me up. And I just checked it then. Vidra come on the uh, 90th minute because no, was the it? Stopping. Yeah, and so the whole afternoon was just frustrating because at one-one, when we uh, eight-minute stoppages. Yes, we were, home, we, were, we were the home side and we didn't show any form of just trying to win the game and nick it. Or, it's like against Cardiff we still had that little bit of impetus going forward just to try and nick and we did nick it but we didn't do that against Huddersfield. We didn't even try to it at the end it was like we were playing against Chelsea or something like that in terms of just everyone's behind the ball we're just going to get the point and move on
2: Yes and I think that is that's a, a perfect link thank you Robbie it takes me into the, the next point I wanted to talk about one of the biggest gripes about the weekend was the manner in which Burnley certainly finished that game and Robbie's just summarize that perfectly for me we were playing bottom of the league who yes fair enough they came to turf more with a fighting attitude and wanted to win the game but we were the home side we'd already gone ahead and we'd just conceded a an equalizer and we were strolling around the park for most of added on time for, for the injury like we were four 0 up now what that led to and The gravity of this will depend largely on where you sat in the ground. For some of us, this was very loud and it was very obvious. For other people, it was hardly there at all. But there were pockets of fans at the end of the game who booed the team off the pitch. So that's the next point I want to talk to because that actually happened and that has been a long time since we had that level of dissatisfaction at Turf Moor. Now some people, a couple of people have tweeted me to say, oh no, we were booing the referee. I don't think we were because to be honest, I'm not entirely sure that we had a particularly poor referee in display on, on Turf on Saturday. I certainly don't think there's anything that that Burnley fans needed to, to be that angry about with a referee that they'd boo it. And certainly in the area of the ground where I was sat, the booing was absolutely 100% at the players because I heard the narrative that came after the booze as well and some of the shouts that were being made to the players. So there's no getting away from this. As uncomfortable as it is to here and as uncomfortable as it is to discuss it happened on Saturday so we're gonna to have to address it. Now the first view on this that I wanna pull up is Amy Wiseman, who was absolutely livid at the Burnley fans for doing this. And she's been very vocal and very defensive of this side over the weekend. And then I wanted to give her her a voice really to to really put forward what she said and one of the main tweets that she summed up how she felt about this was, I agree that the football was atrocious and certain performances were very poor but booing is just embarrassing. We are better than that. The players will know that it wasn't good enough. Now, Robbie, one of the things that you tweeted me actually after the game, and you said you were actually anti-booing too. But today was such a disgrace of a performance that you can actually understand where that came from. So let's kick off with you. Where do you stand in camp booing? Does it feel utterly ridiculous, which is kind of where I sit, or is it justified given the manner in which Burnley ended that game?
1: Yeah, I thought it was justified at the weekend. Like, like, like you just read my tweet out then. Like, I usually. I I can't remember the last time I booed or burned the team off. You're probably going back to the Brian Laws days or maybe Eddie Howe days. I'm not sure, but I'm I'm not bothered about the football in terms of like sometimes you have to be ugly and sometimes you're not quite at it and you're just not like it's not your afternoon. But it's just the fact it was the it was the stoppage time that did it for me. It was just the fact that we weren't chasing the game and there was no intensity or anything like that. It just seems like the players weren't. Bothered, which is a pretty strong thing to say under Sean Dyche, under like Sean Dyche, because the minimum requirement is sweat on the shirt and whatnot, and it just felt like the players weren't bothered. I'm I, I'm sure they what they are. i never I don't want to accuse them of that, but it I was just so disappointed at the fact we didn't even try and win the game. It was just I, I just wanted to voice that really.
2: Okay, that's yeah no that's that's perfectly understandable. That's what I was looking for. Dave where do you sit in camp boo players off the pitch
1: um well i wasn't personally
0: i didn't hear much of it from uh, from from where i was there, there was some when the final whistle went but then like, like as usual that did turn to applause uh, later on from probably the majority of, of, of fans who who'd stayed to uh, to applaud the players as they as they usually do we have to put things into perspective yeah there, there is disappointment that we didn't get the 3 points but I think whoever we play in the Premier League, there's not an automatic right to get three points. On the flip side, people have a right to express their disappointment in in whatever way they they see fit. So you know, people did that. I don't think it was it wasn't extended. It didn't sort of. Carry on for a, for a long period of time, but it, it it was there, and we just hope next time uh, we're at Turf Moor we can put on a performance that means that you know no one's even thinking about that, and that's not on their minds. But we need to uh, to up our game for certain because there'll be a lot better sides in Huddersfield coming to turf more this season.
2: Yeah, they really will. That's the worrying one. And, and actually, uh, as we're about to come on to when we finish the analysis of this game, our, our next fixture is certainly not one that we would be looking to bounce back from. We put it out there to you, listeners, and we, we've asked a few challenging questions this weekend on Twitter. And not all of them have been received that well. But you know what? We'll always ask the question because... It's our job to challenge opinions, and it's our job to start a discussion, and it's our job to elicit a debate out of out of listeners. And if if some of those opinions annoy people, then as long as people can stay cordial and friendly and not get into a big fight and and all start falling out, then I think it's I think it's good and I think it's healthy for us to debate these points. So we set it out there and we asked you what you thought about the booze at the end of the game, and we picked four tweets: two are anti-booing and two are pro-booing. So I will give you in true lawyer style, both sides of the debate. Andy, he said to us, I am normally against any negativity in the stadium, but at the end of the game, after that performance, I can understand those that did boo. The players need to know that that sort of performance is not acceptable. So, in the stand for the opposition view, Gordon Harrison was furious just as much as Amy was, and he said, There is no excuse for booing. It's a disgrace. We didn't even lose. There's unrealistic expectations of some supporters, and that's threatening to eat away the joy of the remarkable continued resurgence of the team and the club. We may have reached a growth plateau But that's okay. Actually, do you know what? I'm going to end this little feature on that tweet because what a fantastic summary by Gordon there. I don't want us to eat away the joy of the remarkable continued resurgence of the team and the club. Gordon, thank you so much for sending that tweet because that's an absolutely fantastic summary of of, of exactly where we are right now and and what we all should be thinking. I'm going to leave the the Huddersfield game on that, Dave and and Robbie, because I just think that's a fantastic way to, to get us all looking. Let's park it. Let's put it to bed. It happened. We've got an international break now. We come back after the international break with an opportunity to go to the Etihad Stadium and play Manchester City, this once-in-a-generation side who are playing the most incredible football and some of the greatest players in the Premier League. And we're part of that. We're part of that narrative. We are part of the Premier League. And we're not here to make up numbers. We are here to play our football and support our club in the Premier League so Dave let's look at it you've been looking this week at the head-to-head starts for the city game tell us what we can expect
0: yeah it's been an interesting one looking back on the uh, on the previous match against Manchester City we don't have uh, the best of records going to their place, obviously uh, Main Road while they were still playing there and obviously now at the uh, the Etihad Stadium. It's actually a couple of milestones. It's the uh, 50th away match that Burnley have played against Manchester City. We've only got eight wins out of the previous 49 um, and we haven't won any of the last uh, 11 visits there. Uh, the last time that Burnley won a game at Manchester City was um, 1973. We played the, uh, the Charity Shield. That was long before... The Charity Shield or Community Shield as it is now was played at Wembley. I think it might actually have been the last one before it went to Wembley. And it wasn't the prestige game that that it is now. It's it's a much lower profile in those days. But Burnley did go to Main Road and they beat Manchester City 1-0 with a goal from Colin Waldron. Well, that was 45 years ago. And you've got to go back even further than that. 55 years, the last time we won a league game. Uh, against Manchester City on on their ground, Burnley won five two in March nineteen sixty three. Um, Andy Lockhead, uh, Gordon Harris with two, Ray Pointer and Arthur Bellamy were the goal scorers that day. And it's just it's strange looking back on the um, on the results. just kind of a a block of games. Burnley won, I think seven of those eight victories I mentioned were in an eleven year period from nineteen fifty two to nineteen sixty three. Before that and after that, Burnley have been awful in terms of results at Manchester City we have not won any of the last 11 and when you go back way back Burnley didn't win any of their first 20 visits to play them so I there's 15 defeats and five draws and do you recall last week we discussed the 19 20, 21 season and, and the fact that Burnley had beaten Huddersfield to kick-start that 30-match unbeaten run
2: I certainly do remember that, yes.
0: Well, it was a trip to Man City that ended the run. Burnley uh, went 30 matches unbeaten and then they went to Manchester City and lost 3-0. So that's when the, uh, the run ended. So there certainly seems to be, I don't know, difficulties playing there. You know, managers will tell you that, you know, Past results don't have a bearing and it's it's always the next game and, and there's nothing in it. But there certainly seems to be something there. But having said that, on the flip side of the coin, we do have a very notable win for Burnley at Manchester City in May 1960. There's a, an, an odd, the way the season had panned out. Um, all the other games have been played apart from one. Burnley still had to play in Manchester City and had the opportunity, if they won the game to win the league title they haven't been top all season but grabbing a victory would have um, ensured the league title and Burnley did it Brian Pilkington and Trevor Meredith scored the goals and Burnley won 2-1 to seal their second league title but coming back to more recent times the best we've got really a couple of draws in the Premier League so our first Premier League season we drew 3-3 in November 2009 Burnley went I think 2-0 up fairly early on or just before half-time they were, they were 2-0 up. Manchester City came back into the game, went 3-2 up and then Burnley uh, came back and equalised and got a point. That was their first away point of that season. Had some fairly heavy defeats uh, prior to that. Um, and then we also had a 2-2 draw in December 2014. That was uh, between Christmas and New Year. and We came back um, from two goals down at half-time and George Boyd and Ashley Barnes scored goals in the second half to uh, to give us a point in that game.
2: So great news then, Dave. We can expect us to go to City <laughs> after the international break and massively win. No. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, we we're not. I'm sure Sean Dyche won't be going in there with uh, with that mindset. We know it's <laughs> going to be tough. I mean, I mean an- another another start if if you want one. Um, this will be the twenty fifth away game we'll have played in the Premier League against the so called. Big Six, Um, and if you look back on those games, the only one we've won is Chelsea last season.
2: Oh, that's kind of okay. Robbie, listening to all of those head-to-head stats with Dave, I'm kind of sinking a little bit further into my seat as we're recording this and thinking, "Oh my god, this is cannot get even worse than it already is." But you know what? like you said before, we've got nothing to lose, have we? We should just go and just try and score, be like completely bullshy, and just go and try to like score six against them.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I was at both City games last season. Because we played them away in the FA Cup, and that wasn't pleasant to watch. I think in the Premier League game, we actually we were one 0 down for a large period of the game, where you could see us just trying to hang in there, and up until like the final ten minutes, but it didn't quite work out in the end. And City blitzed us with two, three quick fire goals, and won the game quite comfortably in the end. But Yeah, it's just one of those games where you just sort of... I don't want to sound like Neil Warnock and just go, oh, it's Man City away. We'll just write it off and we'll worry about it and hopefully we'll just keep in touch.
2: Yeah, I don't think Dutch will do that, will he? I think he'll certainly make those players go and compete, especially as as he knows that there's been a couple of performances this season that haven't been that great. He's going to have to start turning that around at some point and just instilling a little bit more belief back into this side and reminding these players of where they've got to and what they've achieved so far and, and just get rid of this weird little wobble that they're all on. Dave, obviously you've given us the head-to-head stats and it doesn't make that confident reading and we all know what the City side are like, but... In your heart of heart, with your claret-tinted glasses on, can you tell? just tell me, tell me Burnley can, can get three points at City. It's going to happen, isn't it?
0: Burnley can get three points at City, but we know it's going to be tough. I mean, um, Robbie had mentioned there about the uh, the FA Cup game. Obviously, we took the lead in that game, didn't we? Actually, Barnes scored a really good goal. First half put us into uh, to a lead and we were thinking, well... You no, know, we can we can get something here, but you know they're, they're such a tough side to uh, to play against, particularly on their own patch. It's going to be tough, but I think we need to go in there with a game plan. We, you know, it's going to be a different game plan. I think we're going to be uh, defending for large parts of the game. We're going to be giving up possession to them, but we know we can do it. I mean, it's the one I did mention about the the 2, two, two draw. We were two nil down, came back and got a got a point in that game. City are a different animal um since then you know they they've signed a lot of players spent a, a hell of a lot of money you're know, talking you know, hundreds of millions of pounds on uh, on playing personnel since then so it, it gets tougher and tougher every season but we know we're capable of it. You know, you look at the, uh, the 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 Chelsea game, the the one away win we have had against those big six sides so far in the Premier League. It, it can happen. So you know, we we'll, we'll be going in there with with some hope. We can uh, we can emulate that uh, that result.
2: Give me a score prediction, Dave, before you go.
0: An optimistic
2: one-one. Ooh, I like that, Robbie. In your heart of heart, tell me that we can beat City. Uh, I'm gonna go four-one City. Oh my God. Robert, hey, I'm going to start banning you from this podcast unless you bring me some... <laughs> I give us a goal. What more do you want? <laughs> Honestly. Well, I think that Burnley are going to win. I'm going to be relentlessly positive. I'm just going to say that Huddersfield was the turning point of the season. The players know that they didn't put the performance in that they needed to in the second half. Dyche knows it. We know it. We all got annoyed about it. Everybody fell out. Everybody's over it. That's it. International break, second part of the season done. We are moving on. And I think Burnley are going to kickstart the second, the third phase sorry, of this season by beating City away at the Etihad and being first on match of the day. And everyone's going to be really, really happy. I'm going to end this podcast by handing it over to you, the listeners. And one of the things that I asked for today on Twitter was just some positivity because... The result of this weekend was that uplifting and positive messages of support and tweets were a little hard to come by. So, I wanted to hear from you and I wanted to spread a little bit of sunshine amongst the Twitter Claret's hashtag and amongst all of us regular listeners just to make us all feel a little bit better. So, this week's podcast is being signed off by a ray of sunshine that are you, the listeners. Nick Warden, I went to Turfmoor this weekend and I ate a peppered steak pie and it was lovely. Claret FPL says, Good Munson is properly magic. Every time I see a Wondercross, I think if Dyche can find him and Pope and Cork and all these other gems, I trust him to sort all of this out. His tactics and team selections might do my head in sometimes, but in Dyche we trust. Mark Jackson, we are still the best in Lancashire. Dan Broadley, Brady and Defoe will be fit soon. Andy, we are on course for safety and Stephen DeFour hasn't even kicked a ball. We'll be fine. Rick Ford. We haven't played particularly well all season, but we're still safely in mid-table. Imagine where we could be when we do start firing on all cylinders. S Doors, that's Siobhan Doors. Good news, it didn't rain. Bad news it was well foggy. <laughs> That really made me laugh and then the last one which is from bobby g gaming who said positives listening to none and ever when it drops and you guys being positive negatives reading Burnley forums look guys we're not down we're okay we're just not europe material yet a nice 12 to 15 to finish is on the cards listeners thank you so much for burying the fog getting over the weekend and taking the time to send us those positive tweets. And that is where I'm going to end this week's podcast because when times are bad, we've got to stick together listeners. We've got to remind ourselves just what we believe in as Burnley fans what we believe in of Sean Dyche and what we believe in these players. And Everybody can have off days and we've done it ourselves. Every single one of us has gone into work and maybe not performed as well as we should have done. And we are lucky. We don't have thousands of people across the country who are quick to jump on us or whose weekends are ruined by a bad performance we put in at work. But it's just a blip and that's all it is. And it will be absolutely fine. And I have no doubt at all that the Burnley team that we know and love will finish quite comfortably mid-table this season and we'll just go again next next summer and we'll have another season in the Premier League with Deitch at the helm, with these players and we will have forgotten all about a home game against Huddersfield and how bad the last 15 minutes felt. So my thanks this week, as ever, go to Robbie and Dave for joining me in the studio and getting us through what was a a difficult week in terms of analysing that game. My thanks go to Matt, our producer, who will be sifting through all of this material and be producing the finished podcast you are now listening to. But my thanks, as ever, go to you, the listeners, for downloading and listening to this episode. Your support is so much appreciated and we simply would not be here without you. I've been Natalie Bromley. This has been the Known I Never podcast. Until next time.